What do Finland, New Zealand and Taiwan have in common? A good management of the coronavirus pandemic and a woman at the top of the government. And what do the US, Brazil and Mexico have in common? Mask dismissing heads of state who, you guessed it, happen to be men. During the pandemic, countries helmed by women have had six times fewer confirmed deaths than countries with governments led by men. So what does gender have to do with presidential style? To dissect the gender of power, I sat down with Dr. Zoe Marks, who teaches a course called 21st Century Global Feminisms at the Harvard Kennedy School. Her students have referred to the course as brilliant and enlightening. I am Zoya Soroy and this is The Dive, the show that brings Harvard experts to break down the news for you. It's a heat wave over here, so it's so annoying. I'm in Zurich, yes. A large part of why we find ourselves in the position we find ourselves in has to do not only with the virus itself, but the virus management And we've seen all kinds of management. Two kinds that stand out now are the sort of the effective and the empathetic female leader, a la Jacinda Ardern. As we all learned from our first experience with COVID, once and that is contrasted by the nationalist strong men such as Bolsonaro. How did we get to this gendered divide in leadership style? And is it a myth or is there more to it? That's a great question. I was quick to identify the pattern long before the sort of headlines started coming out. And I noticed that, you know, the the countries that were getting kind of accolades at the early days of the pandemic, so we're talking about back in late February, March, they were slightly esoteric. They're not countries that usually get headlines in the United States. So it was countries like Denmark. Meanwhile, its neighbor Denmark is set to ease some of its lockdown restrictions. Because Taiwan, of in the number Singapore, of you know, they're important in their own regions, but in terms of kind of uh, animating the kind of public imagination in America, they're not usually countries that are getting headlines. Finland was another one. And I quickly realized that these are all countries that have female heads of state now. As you know, there are not very many female heads of state globally. Just about 10% of countries have an elected female leader. But I also think that some of the largest countries are led by men who've done particularly poorly. I'm shaking hands. Continuously. I was at a I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients, and I shook hands with everybody. Uh, you'll be pleased to know, and, and I continue to shake hands. And so they have kind of set a standard of what masculine or male leadership during the crisis looks like that is not at all indicative of how most men around the world are leading at this moment. So what was it that these female leaders were getting right? There were a couple of things that those countries were doing really well. I think the first was trying to take a science-centered approach and trying to lead with prevention rather than sort of response. And so one of the things we know about coronavirus is there is no treatment currently available and there's also no vaccine. And so that means kind of you have to take relatively decisive action in the face of uncertainty. So Taiwan, for example, increased almost a hundredfold uh, its production of PPE and masks in particular within the first two weeks of getting news from China that it was probably going to be a relatively communicable virus. 
Once the worst of the outbreak was over, the country decided to donate millions of the PPE surplus to places uh, around the world, uh, including Mississippi. Come on in, everybody. We've got some guests here today. It's a great, uh, great day to welcome our friends from Taiwan here to Mississippi. So that was one example of really kind of decisive preventive action. Finland has become known as the prepper of the Nordics for, for its preparation and preparedness. You know, they quickly relied on their national stockpiles. Other countries that are, you know, even less likely to get the headlines like Georgia, which is not far from Iran, which was one of the earliest epicenters of the of the pandemic. Actually, before it was declared a pandemic, Iran had a massive outbreak. Georgia actually identified patient zero at the land crossing with Azerbaijan. So it was like really remarkable levels of kind of mobilization of a pandemic response and preparedness that I think is probably the most important thing that those relatively small countries were able to do in order to kind of get ahead of the curve and then eventually suppress any um, community spread. And is that a female leadership trait? A lot of focus has been on this empathetic side. Jacinda Ardern showing personal videos from her sofa. Evening, everyone. That I would jump online um, quickly and just check in with everyone, really. Norway's head of state holding a press conference for only children, but but the overall reaction has been one that is very decisive, very rational. So that's not something that that people associate necessarily with women or the stereotype, at least. Right. And I think you're getting right to the heart of what can gender explain and what can it not explain. So one of the things that is important to keep in mind is like, obviously, preparedness is not a uniquely gendered trait. I mean, we might have sort of joking stereotypes in our minds about like mothers who have, you know, band-aids and snacks and a security blanket, and all sorts of things in their purse. And that maybe they are a little bit more prepared and maybe that does scale to how we think about leadership. But the United States was ranked globally as the most prepared, best positioned country in the world in the face of a pandemic, right? There's this, I'm a political scientist, but this is not my area of expertise, but there's a global ranking system and the United States was ranked number one. The study that Zoe is referencing, it's called the Global Health Security Index. And it's a first ever ranking of 195 countries and how prepared they are to deal with the pandemic. And indeed, the United States took the number one spot. And obviously, that has not stopped the United States from having the highest number of deaths in the, in the, in the world. So preparedness and activating your preparation and using it effectively, I think, are two very different things. And really trying to actually make the right decisions at the right time, which is really the key here. And it's not, that's not gendered. That's not something that we owe either to our biology or to our socialization in a gendered society. But what has happened is we saw many of the female heads of state and other female leaders like female chief medical officers, women at at sort of local or regional political levels were also taking an active role in communicating like difficult and bad information in ways that were clear, compelling, consistent and relatable. And so one of the things that we've begun to understand from leadership research is that there are these sort of two paradigms of transformational versus transactional leadership. And transactional leadership is a sort of, if you follow me, 
you'll benefit, right? You do X, I give you Y. Transformational leadership is, is a sort of we're all in this together type of leadership style. It motivates people to follow along with either a policy or a vision in the, in the sense of a common cause. And so I think that that's really, really crucial for understanding why women might be slightly better positioned at the outset of a pandemic, at least, is because they are much more likely to rely on transformational leadership. And the thing with the pandemic is that it's really not just a crisis of leadership, but it's a crisis of followership. You have to convince people to make sacrifices in the face of a virus that they cannot see. And I think that's where the female leaders that were kind of at the front of the public face of that preparation were able to convince people to come along with them. But why would women lean towards the style that motivates and inspires rather than merely giving orders? The research isn't entirely clear on what it what explains the sort of gender division in leadership styles, but a lot of it, I think, has to do with the fact that because of the way that sexism and patriarchy discriminates against women in businesses and in government and in other like sites of power, women have to be able to motivate and mobilize people because if you rely entirely on transaction, you're much more likely to be seen as ambitious and instrumental if you're a woman, and you also become dispensable or replaceable. Whereas if you're able to kind of convince people to come along with you and you build trust, um, I think that that's sort of something that women rely on socially now. The other really important leadership technique that women tend to do better than men, and this is not to say, again, that men don't do it, but it's actually that just women overperform. They disproportionately do it, is democratic leadership, which really means that they rely on the inputs from those who are below them. And so one of the things that we also see happening in the pandemic is you have to be able to rely on people like scientific advisors and frontline health workers in order to get good information. And if men just took a little bit too long, that's enough time to really change the course of a country's pandemic kind of trajectory. So does that mean we won't see any female autocrats? Oh, no, we still have female autocrats. That, I mean, there's a, it's important to distinguish, you know, why a female leader might have a slight advantage over a male leader in the face of an initial pandemic or public health response. But in terms of the long-term mm -hmm. political personality and objectives of men and women, that always gets down to not only the individual and their political goals, but also the party or the political elites that surround them. But there are a few things that there are gender gaps on. And some of those leadership styles that we've considered to be feminine or feminized Actually, men would have been better off using them earlier on, not telling people, for example, like the, the mayor of Milan and the mayor of New York City, you know, they're saying, go out to bars, live your life. It's fine. We cannot shut down because of undue fear. You know, that cost them several weeks of precious preparation time and responsiveness. And so if you had been willing to kind of face the music a little bit sooner, you probably would have seen thousands of lives saved in both of those regions in New York and in Northern Italy. But having a female prime minister does not necessarily mean that the country is this democratic, prosperous example. I think it's important to remember that historically, women have come into power through a number of different channels. So one of the, the strongest predictors or those sort of strongest correlates with 
women's leadership at the at the national level has actually been their family and whether or not she's related to a former very powerful male political leader. And that doesn't necessarily flow through democratic channels, right? So I think part of what you're getting at is like in yeah, like in South Korea, the the former head of state whose father was also the president. Or, or in India, we've seen this um to some extent in Latin America. And then, of course, monarchs, right? The the monarchy is always the sort of wild card in thinking about nature and nurture and electoral systems and regime type. But, you know, I think part of what you're getting at is do you already have to be a really healthy democracy and a liberal economy living by a certain set of kind of cosmopolitan principles, maybe even a little bit socialist in order to elect a woman? That's certainly not the case. On the other end of the spectrum, the Atlantic said that it's not that women are doing better, but it's that these strong men are doing worse. And what are what is the, the leadership style of these strong men and why are they doing worse now? It's easy to look at the train wreck that is like Donald Trump's or Bolsonaro's kind of denialism, unwillingness to wear face masks, like not even basic preventative measures such as social distancing, like truly undermining what would be a sound medical intervention and what would be a not sound one, like drinking bleach. Stunned reaction today to the president's jaw-dropping suggestions on how to combat COVID-19. I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that? I kind of want to avoid getting distracted by like truly catastrophic leadership because some of that is also, you know, it's being fed by a media cycle that actually benefits from the, you know, the worse it gets, the more people want to watch the news. And so there's a lot that, that we could unpack there. But some of what has been a little bit more banal or ordinary and potentially as destructive is this sort of desire to one frame the pandemic as a choice between economic health and physical or medical health, which is false because we know that the economy can only truly recover when people are well and when workers are well, and when there are not, you know, huge deaths at warehouses or meatpacking plants. We also know that, for example, mothers and, and people, who have children cannot go back to work full time if schools can't reopen. So there's a lot of false choices that have been made. And I think to some extent, um, we've actually seen women leaders and some male leaders do a better job of kind of repositioning what these choices are and not creating these false dichotomies between the economy and, and physical well-being. Um, so that's one thing that I think Historically, political science suggests women are a little bit better at thinking across kind of multiple dimensions of an issue. So, for example, if you have more women in cabinet or if you have more women elected to a legislature, you're, you're likely to have higher levels of health spending, education spending and other social welfare provisions. The other thing that I think is a bit gendered is what I was mentioning before about the what we saw happen in Milan, we saw it in Miami and Florida, we saw it in New York City, this kind of denialism as men tried to assert control over something that they did not have data about. And I think that there's some forced humility that comes from women's chronic exposure to sexism that actually makes them a little bit better prepared 
to acknowledge uncertainty and to make unpopular decisions. Whereas male leaders who have ridden a wave of popularity to power are much less likely to feel comfortable making an unpopular decision. Why do you think that style wasn't so recognized before or so damaging before this strongman denialism? Because surely each country faced their own set of problems even before the pandemic. How come how, yeah. how they got away with it for so long? So there's two things going on here. One is like, why why have people with bad leadership traits been rewarded? And there's public opinion research that finds that, you know, when pressed to choose, the sort of average respondent to a nationally representative survey in the United States, for example, this is from Pew Research, they'll say, well, you know, ultimately, we just really want somebody who's ambitious, like empathy matters, patience, you know, what these other sort of soft leadership traits, if you have to pick in a horse race between two of them, or if you have to pick just three of these overall positive traits, people tend to veer towards the ones that that are seen as really decisive, but also that veer towards aggressive or ambitious. And, and so there's this kind of like this trading off that I think we tend to do where we will take certain sets of characteristics that we ascribe to be more masculine, like being decisive or confident or strong-willed, and we'll tend to penalize women who are seen as having too much of those same characteristics. And so that's partly why we end up having so many more men in elected office than women is because we still prefer a sort of strongman style of leadership when pressed because it seems trustworthy when things are going well. You want somebody who's really going to advocate for you and push an agenda forward. When things go poorly for a man, it's usually seen by the public as bad luck. And if it goes poorly for a woman, it's usually it's usually seen as um, her fault. And so that also plays into this, right? Because it's not just what are we choosing at the outset when there's an election, for, ex- for an example, but also how do we respond to the leadership as it unfolds? And there's a real tendency to penalize women, particularly on economic misfortune, but not to do not to hold men to the same standards that it's like, oh, the economy took a downturn but he will be rewarded if it picks up. Whereas if it picks up under a woman's leadership, it's more likely to be attributed to chance or to her team or her advisors. And so this attribution of credit really matters when we think about why do we have leaders in place who stick their head in the sand or who denigrate science or are clearly taking actions that are not consistent with what all of the experts say we should be doing during the pandemic. Part of that is, is why. Because they can get away with it. And what, what examples come to mind, the biggest one in this pandemic, but also before? What examples of blame come to mind? Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to say. I think I was in a, a conversation with the former president of Liberia, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, relatively early on in the pandemic. And she was actually the first person who sort of put her finger on this um, ability to take difficult decisions in public and make unpopular decisions in public and have to explain that to people. And I thought she was incredibly articulate talking about her experience having to do that during the Ebola crisis in West Africa in 2015. But it's much harder to, to see people give credit for the interventions that worked because you don't 
necessarily know they worked because when it works, it means that you don't see the virus and people don't die. And so do you think all this media attention on how women are leading their countries and the praise that they're getting, is it a good thing or what is on the other side of the coin? I tend to think that women getting credit for things going well is almost always a good thing, right? But there is a little bit of a discomfort, I think, among some women and feminists in particular who feel as though the authority is contingent on women being soft, maternal, accessible, vulnerable, and that these are expectations that are untenable in the long term for women leaders. It's not possible to keep doing, you know, Facebook chats in your pajamas if the context changes radically and you're trying to do international trade talks, for example, or trying to hammer out an environmental sustainability package or something like that. And I think that there's also um, a counterpoint to that, which is that These are women leaders who have been innovating in their cultural context. They have been using new political technologies incredibly effectively in a totally un unprecedented global pandemic. And it's not every woman who's using the same bag of tricks, right? So we know that Angela Merkel was getting a lot of credit for her scientific background. That kind of made up for the fact that she's not particularly warm and fuzzy. Uh, Switzerland, Denmark, and Norway, they were pretty ahead of the curve in thinking about how are they going to position themselves in the in the global recovery. They were donating money to poor countries, trying to, you know, clarify the terms of um, EU integration for economic reopening. I think a lot of a lot of that kind of long time horizon is where we should be paying more attention and maybe a little bit less attention to the wonderful public messaging towards children and to grandparents and this very human side of the response, which we desperately needed in March. But now it's like, mm -hmm. are we going back to school and can we still trade with our neighbors? And if that's not happening, then what's our reopening plan? Can a time like this lead to positive change in the future? Can it serve as an example that will inspire other women to run for office? It's difficult for me to answer that outside of the U.S. context. So maybe I'll answer it within the U.S. context. I think it's highly likely that the pandemic, to the extent it, it amplifies and motivates women to run for office, I think it will do so through anger and rage more than through inspiration of kind of iconic women's leadership. And so, you know, here, I think that, yeah, this could have positive effects on, on women's participation and minority and other underrepresented groups participation in politics, because they've been so hurt by the pandemic. But in the short term, I think we're going to see women unduly impacted negatively in the labor market. I think we'll see the pandemic have a negative impact on women's long-term earning potential because of time taken away, disproportionate to fathers, um, to care for children and parents and elderly and sick loved ones. And so I gave the example of Denmark and some of their economic innovation was to actually just pay people to stay home. And that took the pressure off businesses. Other countries have found ways to compensate people for having to, to take care of loved ones or to educate their children. 
that's the kind of innovation that I would like to see implemented in the United States. But because it's not currently forthcoming, I think it's much more likely that we'll see women's participation increase out of frustration. Zoe, thank you so much for coming on the dive. It was really a pleasure. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It was great to talk to you. And I will end on one small positive note, okay. which is that if we do elect more women, we'll get greater investment in health and education, which will improve our position for the next pandemic or the second wave. So if we're trying to vote for the medium term, we should definitely be paying attention to electing women, people of color, and others from underrepresented groups who know actually how to channel resources to improve the outcomes.